Hey guys, and welcome to the Female Fitness Formula podcast. I'm your host, Sheridan Skye, and today I have a guest speaker with me. And I always love these episodes because one of the things that I find really cool about my job is the fact that I get to just sit here and talk to people that I would literally pay to speak with. And they will happily come and talk to all of you about and share all of their knowledge. And today I have a guest who I very much respect in this industry. And his name is Luke Tullock. Hello, Luke. Hey, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, very, very kind words. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you. Did I say your surname right? Is that is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I believe it's like a at the end, but we dropped that uh, a long time ago, I think, because no one can say it. So, <laughs> so what, what's your, like, where were you born? Were you born in Australia? I was actually born in South Africa and I moved to Australia wow. when I was eight. So in South Africa, we would say Talach and they would mm. in Scotland or wherever originally, I think uh, Scottish and Irish in the name. So they would probably do that with a more Gaelic uh, language yeah. there, but. It's a yeah. it's a hard when we're in Australia. So yeah, I was going to say Aussies would have no hope of the. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, and then you know I got the Swedish thing as well. I got to try and like so even my first name is like a little bit unfamiliar. So yeah. 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 Amazing. Well, yeah. I'm sure many of my listeners know who you are, but for those who don't, just give us a bit of a rundown on who is Luke. What do you do? What are you passionate about? And maybe give us a little bit of an insight into some of the personal um, areas of your life that you feel mm. comfortable sharing. Sure, sure, yeah. So I am originally, well, I lived in, I just said I was born in South Africa, but I grew up in Sydney and I took up personal training um, there when I was 18 or so and been a trainer ever since. So I've got about 15 years in the industry now. I currently live in Sweden and work exclusively online. Um, and I suppose most of my clientele over time have become personal trainers, like other trainers mostly. Uh, so I was always very passionate about the, I suppose, the mechanisms about how everything works in fitness, especially around strength training and, and muscle growth. And so I would do a lot of research on that side of things and the nutrition associated with it and this kind of stuff. Uh, during my personal training earlier on, I went back to uni and did a neuroscience degree just so I could get a background in some of the physiology and so on. So that was really interesting for me and, and pretty good. Um, so now the main thing I do is work with other coaches with their own training programs and I help them a little bit with some business stuff as well. Um, but yeah, otherwise I work exclusively online. I've got a little daughter who is about 15 months old now and we live in Gothenburg in Sweden, which is a pretty cool place. So really nice that we're going into spring now. It's actually, uh, it's like amazing time of year. If you can put up with like, you know, mm. December, January, then it's freaking awesome when it comes into summer. So <laughs> that's yeah. pretty much me in a nutshell, but, um, yeah, I suppose a, a big part of what I do is the education side of things and trying to make those complex ideas something that's a little bit more digestible for the average person who's just into training. That's kind of what I really, really like doing. And I think that's what I think I'm good at as well. So, mm, Yes, I would absolutely agree. And it's, I've, I've had a few guests on the podcast now and I'm learning that what I gravitate toward are the educators and the leaders in the industry who are really able to take complex topics and deliver them in a way that your everyday people can understand. And when I say everyday people, that's that's not, um, you know, to say that they're, they're not switched on or they're not intelligent. But I think that particularly when you're, an, you know, quote unquote, evidence-based coach, we have a tendency, and I know that I've noticed this in myself, and it's something that I've had to work on really hard or work hard on to not do, is we tend to talk like we're talking to our colleagues and like we're talking to people that are really educated in this space. And those are the people that 
we're not helping, or at least I'm not. I'm I'm speaking to everyday mums. I'm speaking to people who don't really care about you know muscle protein synthesis and this and that. They just want to be they just want to be healthier. They just want to improve their training, their nutrition, and they want it in a really digestible way. So I agree that you have a great ability to be able to take really complex topics and deliver them in a really digestible way. And, and one example I can even think of is I remember reading, uh, I think it was an old blog of yours and you were talking about, um, it was mTOR and the muscle full effect and how that kind of relates to, you know, meal timing with muscle protein synthesis and, and, and all of these things. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. But every, every other avenue I tried to understand it, it was complicated so thank you for what you do you, you're you're much needed in the industry and <laughs> thank you for context i um it, it's kind of a, a small world because when i first moved to sydney i moved to zetland and th th there's a point to this story but the, our next door neighbors were the owners of lift gym at that time oh is that right i didn't know that yeah yeah i can't remember oh, wow. the names but at the time they had a little a little one whether it was a girl or a boy yeah a but little girl yeah yeah the way that i found you was i i got to know them and i was like what what do you guys do and they're like oh we own a gym in surrey hills it was surrey hills wasn't it it was redfern redfern yeah yeah yeah, yeah. redfern yes and um I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I, I'm into training and I was like, oh, check it out. And then I, I I had started following you then. So that was a really long time ago when you were working at Lyft. Yeah, yeah. That was quite a while ago. Uh, when did we start there? It must have been 20, five, 15, 16 or something, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was gravitated toward you because you had that background of the neuroscience and at the time I was I was a nurse so and I was working on a neurosurgical ward so I was like oh cool like that's really cool that he has that background and anyway fast forward a few years later and uh, I ended up actually being a client of yours and I got to yeah. experience you know like you said you coach a lot of clients um sorry coaches and I yeah I found your coaching really valuable in the ways that I was able to kind of pick your brain and you were a bit more of a, a mentor to me. Um, so thank you. And today what I really want to talk about is, I want you to work your magic with this as well, is to talk about the principles of hypertrophy training. And what I'd love for you to do, Luke, is to really strip back the noise that we kind of have within that space because you know, I would consider myself pretty knowledgeable in the ways of nutrition. And if I, if I had to choose the area where I'm like, yeah, cool, I've got like, I could really improve in this area. It's, it's always been training. Nutrition's always come really easy to me. But training is, I feel like it can be kind of like nutrition where you're like keto, vegan, this, that, and you're kind of, it's like whiplash. You know, one person says this, one person says that. But the principle that I've always tried to follow is, okay well let's get rid of the method let's talk about the principle because if i can apply the principle it doesn't matter what method i use I, I just want to know what the principle is so i'd love for you to just sort of talk about you know what is the principle of hypertrophy training what do we know within the research and anything else that you want to share around that yeah totally no i think you're right it's a little bit like we have like nutrition there's a lot of ways to skin the cat and so understanding fundamentally what they're trying to do from a principle standpoint helps a lot because then you can apply the tools to whatever situation you find yourself in as, as opposed to being like well this is the way that i do things you know so with that said essentially with muscle growth what we're trying to do ultimately is put some tension on muscle fibers and that tension kicks off the process of them growing bigger that's fundamentally what we're trying to do so anything that we use as far as a training method goes for muscle growth just has to satisfy that basic process. So to give a little bit of history around this space, you'll sometimes hear about these diff different mechanisms of hypertrophy. And this started with a paper in like 2012 or something like that, I think. Maybe it was 2014 or somewhere around there where three mechanisms of muscle growth were proposed. The first one was mechanical tension second one was metabolic stress, and the third one was muscle damage. And so these would 
hypothetically activate growth in the muscle via different pathways. And so the idea was like, okay, so maybe we can then sort of tune our training towards one of these three pathways for growth, and that way we could maximize our muscle growth. Now, since then, it's kind of changed a little bit in that most people probably think now that like muscle damage doesn't really contribute much to muscle growth in the long term. Uh, metabolic stress maybe plays a bit of a role. And when I say metabolic stress, I mean like the accumulation of sort of acid and, and those kind of waste products that you have when you train. But mechanical tension is probably the main thing that we care about. And the others are kind of maybe along for the ride and maybe they augment that mechanical tension. But that's really like the main thing that we care about. So what that basically means is that when you train and a fiber, a muscle fiber contracts and it's put under tension, it mechanically deforms. Like structurally, it's kind of getting squished and twisted and this kind of thing. And that gets converted. It gets sensed by proteins in the muscle fiber and it's converted into a chemical signal that kicks off muscle protein synthesis. In other words, the muscle fiber starts producing more proteins and building itself up bigger. So that's kind of the fundamental process and and that's really what we're trying to amplify with our training. So we can kind of take that key idea and then apply it to all of the different training variables like how long should we rest? What exercises should we select? What order should we do them in? How many reps should we do? How many sets should we do? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So I guess that kind of orients us as to like what are we really looking for? We're looking to put that tension across the muscle fibers that we're trying to grow. Mm. One of the ways that I feel that you've really explained this concept well is on your Instagram, funnily enough. Um, and one of the posts that you put up was how slow are your reps getting? Because mm. I feel, and I don't know how you, what your thoughts are around this, some people really confuse what mechanical tension is and then they kind of think, well, am I training hard enough? And and one of the things I've taken from, from yourself, Luke, and your, your coaching is when a client asks me, well, am I training hard enough? It's like, okay, well, how slow are your reps actually getting? Are they getting slow? And what's sort of the 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 principle behind that in terms of like, why does that matter? Why do we need to train to a place where our reps are starting to progressively get slower? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because as soon as you say mechanical tension, people think, oh, I've got to lift heavy. And that's yeah. not really the same thing. This is like classic, <laughs> this is classic exercise science using terms that are a little bit confusing. So they have their own little definition within, you know, the exercise science world and like what we colloquially refer to as like tension or overload or whatever is actually a bit different. So it, it gets really confusing with all these terms. But the idea is that um, we don't necessarily have to lift heavy to place a large amount of tension on a muscle fiber. So the way it works is that your brain doesn't use every muscle fiber available to it from the start of a set unless it's really, really, really heavy. Because, you know, if you did that, you wouldn't have any fine motor control, right? Like you put your fork through your face when you tried to eat or whatever. We don't use all of our muscle fibers all of the time. So let's say you're doing a set of like 12 reps, for example. That's not your maximum weight that you could possibly lift. But... What happens from rep one is your brain goes, okay, well, it's not my you know, one rep max, so we can use some muscle fibers to overcome this resistance and get it from point A to point B, but we don't have to use everything available to us. So it does that for a few reps, but some of those fibers that it's using to contract and lift that weight start to get tired and they fall out of recruitment. They can't contribute anymore. So then we call on some more muscle fibers to come in and help out and keep lifting the weight. So now we're at rep like six, seven, eight out of 12. And by the time we get to this point, things are starting to get pretty tough. We've recruited and placed tension on a fair few fibers, but they've gotten tired and they've fallen out of recruitment. And now we're down to the last remaining fibers. And at this point, your reps are probably going to start to slow down because you're trying as hard as you possibly can to keep lifting, but so many fibers have gotten tired and fallen out of recruitment that you're down to the last few and they can't lift the weight at the same speed anymore. And so by the time we hit like 12 reps to failure, you've progressively gone through and recruited every available muscle fiber and placed some tension on it. And therefore, it's going to get that mechanical tension and that stimulus to grow. So this idea of producing uh, or getting sets where your, your reps are starting to slow down 
despite high effort is for me pretty key because it tells you that you're getting close enough to failure that you're recruiting all of the fibers available and putting some tension on them. And this is reflected in the research. So if we look at the research, we've found that as long as you go to failure on a set, if you do like 25, 30 reps to failure, you get the same amount of muscle growth as if you do six reps to failure. So there's a broad range of rep ranges that work, but the key here is that we have to get close to failure because as long as you get close to failure, you're going to be systematically going through and recruiting all of those fibers, placing tension on them, and that way they're going to get the stimulus to grow. Now, there's still some advantages for using different rep ranges for different reasons, but fundamentally, as long as a set gets close to failure or goes to failure, we know that it's going to be a really effective set for muscle growth because it's recruited a lot of muscle fibers and you put some tension on them. Mm. So it's essentially applying that principle that you originally said at the start being that hypertrophy is primarily driven by mechanical tension. Yeah, yeah totally. And so metabolic stress kind of plays a role there because it's the, it's the metabolic stress that is often like inhibiting, like it's, that's the yeah. side effect of the fatigue, if you know what I mean. So that's why like it can be difficult to study this stuff because, you know, if you do multiple sets of like 25 to failure, guess what? You're going to get some muscle damage. You're going to get some metabolic stress and you're going to get some mechanical tension. So how do we know which one's causing what? Like, so it's mm. been a, a process of trying to figure out, okay, what's actually causing this. But this research was like a key finding in the, in the field because it's like, you know, a set of six to failure is really, really different to a set of 30 to failure, but they both seem to produce the same amount of growth. So it kind of gave us a clue that like, hey, it's not, probably not the metabolic stress, probably not the muscle damage. It's probably the mechanical tension on each individual fiber that's causing the growth. Mm, which is actually really interesting. And I, you know, I work with a lot of women who are beginners and then I work to, with women who are, you know, more intermediate to advanced. And if I think about myself when I was first coming into resistance training, I was really quite intimidated to take a set to a place where it started to become hard because I almost felt like I looked like I was incompetent, like I couldn't do that set and therefore oh, I, I better not look like I'm struggling. But if we really look at what it takes to change your physique and, and a lot of women are chasing, you know, I want that quote-unquote toned look and what that really means when we strip it back is they want to lose body fat and they want to gain muscle. But you ultimately need to be gaining muscle in order to, to have that, that physique. So the very thing that beginners or maybe women who are new to training avoid is the very thing that they, they need to be chasing. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, I see that quite a lot myself as well and i think the thing is is that so many women then and i mean guys do this too but i've seen it a lot with women in particular is that their their volume tends to get really really high as a result of this so as as an example if you're doing these sort of sub maximal sets um you might be capable of doing like you know 30 40 sets in a workout which i've seen quite a lot um but if you're genuinely doing these like sets, hard sets that are going to failure or really close to failure, it's very difficult to do that amount of volume. And you don't need to do that amount of volume either. So if we think about it, like let's take our 12 reps to failure set, you know, uh, if you were doing tons of um, sets that are like, you know, six reps with that weight that you could actually do for 12 reps, um, you're getting you're getting effective reps in there, reps that are going to cause some muscle growth, but the ones that are the most effective are actually the ones that get closer to failure because that's where you're getting that maximal recruitment and that maximal tension across all the fibers. So if we have a bit of a thought experiment, we could say that, okay, if we did the same weight, but we just got a bit closer to failure, we wouldn't have to do as many sets because we're actually mm. getting more effective reps, so to speak, in each set. And that means that maybe on an exercise, instead of needing to do like five or six sets to get enough uh, effective reps to make your muscles grow, you might only need three sets. Um, mm. And so that's kind of a key idea for me is that first, there has to be uh, effort and proximity to failure, like getting close to failure on sets. 
then we increase the volume. It's not a case of like, okay, we have to do 20 sets per body part or whatever it is. Um, mm. And so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. For me, it's like, no, let's go back and make sure that every set we're doing is actually really, really stimulative. And then we can increase it if we need to. But the advantage of that is that you know that you're creating a stimulus that's going to drive muscle growth. And then you don't have to spend as much time in the gym to actually get the growth that you want. Um, so that that's sort of my approach because sometimes you do hear like, oh, you need to do a certain amount of volume or like volume's the driver of hypertrophy. But the way that I see it is that the main thing that's causing the growth is the tension. Okay. Mm. So we want to maximize the tension from each set ideally. And then the volume is simply the dose of how much of like that tension that we're giving overall in the workout. It's not like you have to do this amount of volume and then we'll go and we'll tinker with you know, the proximity to failure and everything from there. It's got to start yeah. from that really high effort set and then you can sort of play with the volume to, to like inch it up if you need to. Mm. Yeah, and there was there was some previous research that shows or if you ask somebody, you know, how many sets per muscle group do you need in order to grow muscle, there's that either, you know, 10 to 20 or 12 to 20, which is a really broad range. And then yeah. the the problem that comes into that, it's like, well, how do you count something like a barbell back squat? Do you is that a is that a quad exercise? Is that a glute exercise? How close to failure did you take that? Was that an RPE of five or an RPE of nine? So it's it kind of mm. becomes problematic when you view it in the in terms of well, how many sets per muscle group do I need to do per week in order to progress? So my question for you, Luke, is. You mentioned briefly, you know, first you want to make sure that that client is training to a high degree of intensity. So intensity in this respect doesn't mean how much you're huffing and puffing or, you know, how much you can get your heart rate up, but how slow are those reps getting essentially. Hmm. Once once you've ascertained that your client, you know, you, you might view their videos through you're all online they send you a training video and one i assume that you're assessing their technique but you're also assessing their intensity and and trying to coach them through how do you actually get that set to an effective place so once you're comfortable with knowing that that client yep you're you're training to a high degree of intensity how do you then approach volume and when do you know when to increase it for that particular client yeah, so I think the volume thing is probably like the most confusing thing out of any anything discussed in like hypertrophy. It's like, how much should I do? What's the ideal amount? And unfortunately, I think there was a period when there was more research being done on like how much training volume is effective, where people started throwing out like targets for each muscle group or whatever. Oh, you've got to do 15 sets on glutes or whatever. And I actually think that was in some ways helpful, but in many ways, the way it was communicated was more harmful than anything because uh, we see these findings like, yeah, 12 to 20 working sets per muscle group or and, and just to define a working set, it's just a set where you get close to failure like we described before. So you're at least within a couple of reps of hitting failure on a, on a set. Um, the problem is that firstly, as you mentioned, that's a really wide range. Like if you go 12 to 20 or 10 to 20 working sets per muscle group, I mean, one end of that range is double compared to the other one. And secondly, it doesn't take into account your personal attributes like your training history and um, you know even things like your limb lengths and this kind of stuff can change like how much work a muscle has to do on a set. So there's a bit of an issue with that. And the other thing is that there's a limit to how much you can recover from as well with your training and so we have to kind of find this sweet spot of like what is the lower end of what i can do and still make progress and then mm. i can add sets on top of that if i need to the problem is if you go straight to like let's say you read the research and you go oh cool well i want the most effective training so i'm going to do 20 sets per body part or 30 sets on on my glutes or my hamstrings or whatever you want to grow if that's a bit too much for like the optimal weight rate of progress for you you don't really know that. And to find out, you have to reduce the volume. So mm. what happens if you're doing 30 sets a week and it's way too much and you go, okay, well, I want to figure out if maybe I'm just causing too much fatigue here. I'm not able to recover and grow as optimally as I want to. Well, I'm going to reduce my volume and just see how it feels. So, okay, so now you drop it down by 
four sets a week. So now you're doing 20 sets, 26 sets a week. Okay, well, what if that's still too much? Now what do I do? Okay, so now I need to drop it down by another three sets per week. I've got to wait for all that fatigue to go away over the next couple of weeks. Then I can assess how I'm going on 22 sets a week. Uh, maybe that's too much. Like, you know what I mean? Whereas if you start like on the lower end and you go, okay, I'm going to do like eight really effective sets a week or something. Oh, cool. I'm making progress. Okay, fantastic. Well, it's very easy to then add another set or two a week on and go, okay, these can be really high effort sets. Oh, now I'm making more progress. Great. Now I can maybe slap a little bit more on if I want to. Oh, cool. Now I'm making more progress. Now I can slap a little bit more. Oh, no. Now it feels like my body's achy. I'm not recovering well. Cool. So I've found like a sweet spot for my training volume. So if you mm. approach it from like the lower end up, you don't have to mess around with, oh, this might be too much. Now I have to wait for all of the fatigue to like dissipate and I can recover and then see, okay, maybe I could be doing even more. You know what I mean? Um, mm. And if you do it from that sort of low end up, then it's more efficient. You're not spending so much time training in the gym. So the way that I approach it is, can we find some low end of volume where we can keep the effort on your working sets really high and you can aim to make progress both you know, physically, but also in the performance of the lift? Can we, for the same weight, do more reps over the next month or so? Can we, mm -hmm. with the same exercise, do more load for the same number of reps over the next month or so. That's progressive overload. If you can do that and you're making a good rate of progress, I don't really see too much reason to add more volume or to change things. You can kind of keep riding that until the rate of progress starts to slow down. And let's say you hit a plateau on an exercise where you can't improve the performance anymore. It's been like three or four weeks. It's still about the same level. Maybe you're, you don't feel like your muscle groups are growing or whatever. Now we can go, okay, well, maybe to bust this plateau or to give a little bit more stimulus here, what we can do is we can add a couple of sets. So maybe we bump the sets up by 10% or something. Okay, let's see if that enables a bit more growth or, uh, you know, that extra training enables your muscles to adapt a bit more. So now you get a little bit stronger on that lift or whatever. And then you just kind of roll through that same algorithm over and over again over time mm -hmm. you'll probably find that there is a sweet spot of volume for a particular muscle group or set of lifts or whatever that you can recover well from and make progress from and that's the easiest way to find where that is because the reality is like you said different exercises will recruit different muscles and, and often with the compound lift we don't know uh, exactly how much stimulus each muscle is getting if you imagine a squat uh, a squat will typically work your adductors really well. It'll work your glutes really well. It'll work your quads really well. And there's other stuff that gets recruited as well, but it probably doesn't really receive like a stimulus that's going to make it grow too much. But if we go to failure on squats, it doesn't mean that each of those muscle groups is getting the exact same stimulus. Your quads might get tired and fall out of recruitment and fail when your glutes mm. still have five reps left. It doesn't mean that that is not a stimulating set for the glutes, but it does mean that they're probably receiving less stimulus than the quads. So this whole idea of like counting sets can get a little bit tough and trying to figure out, okay, this is this amount of sets for the glutes and this amount of sets for the quads. Um, you know, so it's just a case of like trying to find where that sweet spot is for from a recovery standpoint and from a performance standpoint. And that way you end up getting probably the optimal rate of progress for you. Mm. And is there... When we think about particular muscle groups, and, and one thing that comes to, to mind particular, uh, in, in particular is um, delts, shoulders, because I think everyone who has ever stepped foot in a gym or trained resistance training knows that their lateral raise doesn't really get any significant, like you, you're not adding massive amounts of weight to your lateral raise. And, and in my own experience, I'm like, I feel like I progress really slowly on on, on the lateral range, mm. like whether I'm I might be able to add half a rep or one rep, but I'm you know I'm I'm not lifting twenty kilos and thirty kilos and forty kilos for a lateral raise over the years. But then there are particular muscle groups where I can, you know, um, progress in terms of load lifted. Oh, you know, when you compare that. So my question is. Are smaller muscle groups, should we have a different expectation of the rate of progress um, that we're able to make with smaller muscle groups, such as the deltoids, compared to that of, say, the glutes? 
Yeah, sure. I think that's that's everyone's probably experienced that, right? Like it's you're not going to be jumping from like five kilo lateral raises to, you know, 10 kilos over a training cycle or something like that for sure. So I think this is a big mistake that that people make as well is that the idea of progressive overload, which is adding reps or adding weight over time, is something that you should be aiming for, but you don't have to force that to happen. It's more of a reflection of your progress over time. Okay. Yeah. So as long as the set itself is really hard and the effort is there, you're giving your muscles a really good stimulus to grow. And over time, what will happen is the muscle will grow and grow and grow. And that will mean essentially like you've got a bigger engine to lift more weight. But that takes a bit of time, you know. So maybe you progress from a five kilo lateral raise to a six kilo lateral raise over like several months or something like that. Um, which, if you, I mean, do the math, it's a 20% increase, right? Like it's pretty significant. Yeah. Imagine you put 20% yeah. on your squat in a few months or, or like a year or something, you'd be stoked. So some yeah. exercises are definitely more conducive to adding weight. Like, for example, if we're on a leg press or something, you've got a high degree of stability. Um, the angle uh, means you can lift quite a lot. And the muscles involved are like multiple big muscle groups with tons of muscle involved. So obviously, trying to progress on something like that is way easier than something like a bicep curl or a lateral raise or something. But that, that progressive overload thing, don't get it too skewed. It's more of a reflection of our progress. It's like if we've been training well over the past several months, even maybe six months, then we should see a performance increase. It's not like, oh, well, this week I lifted five kilos for 10. And so next week I have to lift five, kilo, uh, five kilos for 11 or uh, six kilos for 10 or something like that. You can't really force that to happen. You certainly aim for it, but if it doesn't yeah. happen, it doesn't mean that you're not getting a stimulus to your muscles anymore. So I th that's a big point of confusion that I often see. As long as the set is challenging, then you're getting a strong stimulus to the muscles to make them grow. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and one of the things that you touched on at, at the start of the podcast, Luke, was you said that when we look at hypertrophy in terms of rep ranges, we can see, you know, we can grow muscle in a, a really wide um, variety of rep ranges. So you mentioned, I think you said six to 30 reps. So what would be you know, the, the way that I always approach nutrition and training is that there's a cost to everything. We do something one way, there's a trade-off in another way and vice versa. So is there any benefit to, say, doing high reps, being that of the upwards of 15, 20 reps, as opposed to, let's say, six or seven reps? Yeah, like generally speaking, I'm more pro like moderate to low-ish reps for a couple of reasons. So the first is that essentially you're, you're getting into that like quote unquote effective rep range a little bit faster. You don't have to, if you're doing a set of 30 to failure, you don't have to go through like, you know, 20, 25 reps before, yeah, before you start actually getting those really effective reps towards the end of the set. Yeah. The second thing is that the, the sort of burn and uncomfortable sensations of those really high rep sets are less of a factor in you, um, I suppose, quitting the, the set early if you're doing a set of 30 to failure you're, you're pretty likely to actually bail out of that before you yeah. get close to failure because it gets uncomfortable and so you're not genuinely at failure where you can't physically complete another rep you're more just like fuck this burns i can't keep doing this the third thing then which is tying into that is that it's much easier to assess how close to failure you are if you're doing lower reps if you're doing a set of like eight to ten to failure it's really obvious when you're getting close to failure. When you're doing a set of like 20 to 30, it can be pretty tough to actually like, am I actually close to failure or is this just burning or what's going on here? Um, and then I suppose finally is if you do those moderate or, or lower reps, it's a bit easier to get stronger, which I think might not be your primary goal, but certainly I think most people who train for muscle also like, like getting stronger as well. And so I think there are some advantages to doing those more moderate to lower rep ranges. And when I say that, like for me in my head, I'm thinking like six to 12, generally speaking, which is probably like the traditional, you know, muscle building rep range. Um, mm. We know that there's not like an ideal muscle building rep range, but I think there are some advantages to the, that, that sort of traditional wisdom there. Uh, you know, the other thing though, I think is that variety is, is good. Sometimes 
we do want to do higher reps uh, for a couple of reasons as well. Firstly, because maybe it's fun. Some people really like doing it. You get more of a burn, more of a pump, and that can be engaging and it can be a fun thing to do. The second thing is that there may be uh, some advantage to which muscle fibers grow the best depending on which rep range you do. So that's probably less likely. But generally speaking, having variety in your training, I think, is uh, a good principle just to kind of cover your bases. Um, so that's particularly around exercise selection. But I think maybe rep ranges, it, it could be an option as well because we might see that if you do the same thing over and over again, um, there's a sort of uh, novel effect from changing to to something else. You know, so if you always train six to eight reps, you might see a little bump in 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 muscle growth if you were to change that to like twelve to fifteen reps for a phase or something, just because you haven't done it for so long. Mm. Now that's like a bit of a fringe case. It, it might not actually happen, but I think it's a reasonable enough possibility that you might just go like cool well like every i don't know every three or four phases maybe i'll just throw in a little bit higher reps and i think that has the advantage of giving you the the variety um a little bit of bit of fun and then you can also like improve your conditioning and stuff like that which might enable you to more comfortably recover in your normal training and this kind of thing so i would say that probably having some variety in rep ranges is like a good idea but it doesn't have to be anything crazy uh, but yeah, I generally think that the the sort of more moderate rep ranges are probably the best place to be for most people. Mm. And is there any truth to higher reps being, you know, we once thought that lower reps were more fatiguing um, and you can dive into the rabbit hole of, you know, central versus peripheral fatigue, which is probably yeah. a whole other podcast in its, and of itself. But, you know, is, is there truth to higher reps, you know, being that of the 15 above, being a bit more fatiguing than we once originally thought? Yeah, so this this idea of fatigue, like traditionally what people would say is like if you lifted really heavy, you would get lots of CNS fatigue. So often when people lift heavy, they get this kind of sensation of like not so much burning or anything, but just that like the body feels a little bit uh, a little bit pooped out or whatever. Uh, like, like you when you do a really, you know, when you have your you've done that like a heavy deadlift and you feel a little bit brain dead have you ever had that yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. so that kind of feeling which i'm sure people can like relate to yeah um and and so this was like oh that that fatigues the central nervous system whereas you know if you do high reps that is like a burn in the muscle and that just like fatigues the muscle or whatever it is but they're actually very very closely related and so this delineation between where the fatigue is originating from is like a much blurrier line than what most people really realize. The thing is, is that any sensation that we have in the muscles, like burning or, or anything like that, actually sends a message back to the brain that inhibits the brain's signal back out to other muscles again. So mm. ultimately that sort of peripheral fatigue, that burning and that pump in the muscles from maybe high rep work or endurance work or whatever, does end up dampening the central nervous system signal out to the muscles and so you get cns fatigue from that as well and probably more cns fatigue than if you were lifting heavy because uh, we've seen from research that endurance training produces the most cns fatigue in fact so i think that this concept of like and i mean it kind of makes sense like if you think about it if you're doing a set of like 25 or 30 to failure you're doing so much more reps like you're just making the muscle work a ton more and you're getting those unpleasant sensations uh, a lot more easily than if you were doing a set of eight to ten to failure, for example. So um, it's fairly likely that actually doing very, very high reps is probably going to cause a little bit more fatigue than doing sort of more moderate reps. Uh, now, I do think that some people just psychologically, if they're lifting really heavy, maybe if they're not like super into that sort of thing, might feel like, oh, I get more fatigued from that. It takes more of a toll on me. Like, that's fair enough. Um, but, you know, I do think that this concept of fatigue is a little bit misunderstood overall in terms of what rep ranges cause what, because the, the peripheral fatigue and the central fatigue are actually very closely tied together. Mm, yeah. Now with DOMS, so one of the things that you mentioned previous was that one of the original principles 
when we think about hypertrophy wars, a sort of muscle damage. And I still get a lot of clients where, you know, they they start the program and the first week they they tend to have a bit of DOMS. Like I, I feel like if they've they've worked, you know, hard enough, there's going to be a bit of DOMS from that first initial um, exposure to something that they haven't done in a while. But then subsequently in some in, in you know further weeks, if they're reporting that they're still getting DOMS, for me, my question is, okay, this person probably isn't recovering from the volume or the intensity that they've been given. But so I, I will naturally bring that back a little bit. But some people kind of wonder, well, I, I don't feel sore anymore. So does that mean that I'm not working hard enough? So can you just touch on that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So the muscle soreness you get from training, we don't actually know 100% what contributes to it and what causes it. So there's lots of theories floating around. But we do tend to notice that it is related to a novel stimulus. If you do an exercise or a type of training that you haven't done in a long time, you're probably going to get pretty sore, which is why you get so sore sometimes when you come back after like maybe being on holiday for two weeks, maybe your first week you feel really sore, even if you do the same pro uh, training program. Mm -hmm. um, but it is also potentially related to how much work you do and how much muscle damage you cause as well. So... You don't need to, as we discussed a little bit earlier, we originally thought that muscle damage was a really big part of how muscles grow. And certainly a little bit of muscle damage is unavoidable and probably necessary for growth, but it's not something that we want to chase. Because here's the problem, if you cause too much muscle damage, then any muscle protein synthesis that you switch on with your training or with your nutrition ends up having to be spent repairing all of that muscle damage before you can grow new tissue. So mm. if you almost create like this deficit of like muscle damage that has to be repaired first, then all of the muscle protein synthesis that you've worked hard to generate has to go towards repairing that before we can start to build new tissue on top of that. And this is why it's really common for absolute beginners who have never trained before, they actually don't gain any muscle in their first few weeks of training because they cause so much muscle damage from that new stimulus of training that their body's just trying to repair it. It's just trying to catch up and repair it. And they only really start building muscle after like week three or four um, when, when their body gets used to that and it becomes more resistant to the muscle damage and then it can start synthesizing new protein on top of that. So the goal is not to be really sore from a workout for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because if, we, if it's a result of muscle damage, well, we don't want that much muscle damage anyway. Secondly, if it's, uh, if it's from doing new stuff all the time, then you probably want a bit more consistency in your training. And thirdly, if you're sore, you can't necessarily train as hard or as frequently as you might need to to continue to grow. So even if you were not sore whatsoever from a session, you're probably still getting a pretty decent stimulus to grow because remember, it's about the mechanical tension. It's not about how sore you are. It's not about how much muscle damage you produce. Now, if you're training hard, you probably will feel sore sometimes. But if you're like really sore all the time and you can't actually like, oh crap, I'm still sore from training legs like two days ago and I can't train today, that's probably not a good thing. Um, so you do have to kind of think a little bit about that. Now, like some exercises, for example, will produce a little bit more muscle damage and a bit more soreness. So like if you're taking a muscle to its end range a lot and it's really hard there, like let's say you're doing... Romanian deadlifts which stretch and lengthen your hamstrings and you're really pushing the end range of motion and you're doing a lot of volume there you're probably going to cause a bit more muscle damage and you might get a little bit more sore as a result of that so like that's a pretty normal thing mm -hmm. um but you know like people rarely feel like really sore if they do a ton of lateral raises for their delts like they might get sore but it's not as common as something where you're really lengthening the tissue like a pec fly or a uh yeah, like an RDL or something like that. But ultimately, the goal is not really soreness anyway. So um, just be aware that like if you're doing a ton of those lengthening type exercises, you might get sore, but it's not really the goal. Um, but it's just something to pay attention to in your training if it's impacting your ability to train again that week. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the, the population that I work closely with um, are the pre and postnatal population. And one of the limitations with this particular group of clients is the fact that they have a baby growing or they've just given birth to a baby. So one of the things that I have to 
pull back on is their training intensity to allow their pelvic floor to not get any more beaten than it needs to or to recover. So my question for you, Luke, is, is when, when I'm talking to this population of clients, one of the thing I say, things I say is, let's try and preserve as much muscle mass as possible. And some women in their pregnancy, you know, particular, particularly uh, trimester one, I don't know if Fan experienced this, where they feel like dog shit and they can barely train and they don't get in the volume that they're used to getting in. And, and they get really concerned about losing muscle mass. So my question to you is, when we look at building muscle mass, is the volume or intensity required to build muscle mass much different to the intensity um, or frequency needed to maintain muscle mass? Yeah, this is something that's probably surprising to a lot of people, but you don't need very much volume to maintain your muscle that you've already got. There's a fair bit of research pointing to this, but there was one particular study that I think is pretty cool that gets cited quite a lot. But what they did is they had two groups of people who trained for uh, a few months and then they had one of those groups do absolutely nothing for the next five months and they had another of those groups do literally one ninth of the volume that they just used for five months and then they they measured them and they saw how much strength did they maintain how much muscle did they maintain and it turns out that the group that did one ninth of the volume maintained pretty much all of the gains that they had built over that initial training period and their mm. strength was maintained well as well the group that didn't train obviously lost quite a lot. They lost like 30% of their muscle or something, which was what they had built up over that training period. So uh, we have research from that. We also have more recent research in the powerlifting world where um, there's one particular researcher who's been trying to explore like what's the minimum amount of training volume that a powerlifter might need to make progress in the big lifts. And it's also really surprisingly low. It's like a couple of times a week hitting those big lifts for like a couple of working sets, as long as they're high intensity, as long as they're kind of within a couple of reps of failure, you can still make progress even with just a couple of sets a week. So I think combined, this data tells us that it's probably way less than you expect to maintain your gains. This is another argument that I use for trying that lower volume because people get worried like, oh, what if I'm currently doing like 20 sets a week on a body part, like if I go less, won't I lose my gains? Well, absolute worst case scenario is that you're going to maintain your gains. Mm, but mm. more likely is you're going to still continue to make gains and maybe it might even be better because it's now not outstripping your recovery capacity. But certainly in a case where like you're pregnant or you're going away on holiday or you've got an injury or something like that, as long as you're doing like a few sets that are like reasonably challenging on a body part a week, you're going to maintain your gains just fine. Mm. Well, that's reassuring. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and um, also, like, just if you have some time off, like, you actually gain back muscle very, very fast because you already have a lot of the infrastructure available to support muscle mass in a muscle fiber. So, like, um, within a muscle fiber, the cell has essentially got all of these different uh, pieces of infrastructure. Like, it's got blood vessels that grow around the fiber. It's got all of the machinery that builds proteins and, and maintains the muscle. And when you train, you build up all of that infrastructure within the muscle. And so when you stop training for, let's say you have a month off or something, um, yeah, the muscle cell is going to shrink itself. The fiber is going to shrink. And so your muscles will look a bit smaller. But you maintain most, if not all, of that infrastructure. So when you start training again, it's really easy for the muscle to just build back up to the size it was before because it's already got all of the supporting structures in place. So mm -hmm. even worst case scenario, you actually take time off training completely and you lose a bit of size. It'll come back really, really fast. Mm, yeah, I've definitely found that in in post both of my pregnancies and also the clients that I work with, their muscle mass does seem to come back quite quickly, which which is definitely reassuring. But I'm, I'm very mindful of your time, Luke, being that you're a dad and that you're a business owner. So I could talk to you all day about this. But I think that we've, we've got a lot from this um, podcast already. So my next question for you is, what what's next for Luke? So you're you're currently coaching. Uh, do you have anything else sort of in the works? You're you're, you're doing a lot of educating. So recently you were in Melbourne mm. educating. And is there anything else that you're sort of working on at the moment? Yeah, I so definitely trying to do a bit more in person 
um, seminars just because I think that's fun and to kind of get the the live feedback in the room is is cool. Um, I'll be doing a little bit more of that in Australia and hopefully in Europe and the US uh, this year and next year, but uh, launching a mentorship for trainers. So focusing a bit on maybe some of the more um, you know, edge of, of the research that's coming out at the moment because there's lots of interesting stuff about things like drop sets and and range of motion training and all this yeah. kind of stuff that is really interesting that's coming out now. But then also I think the business side of things can be really helpful for a lot of trainers. So um, mm. that's kind of what I'm focused on at the moment. But other than that, yeah, just keeping the coaching business going while I uh, deal with having a 15-month-old still at home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's tough having them at home. I don't know if you find it difficult with podcasts and things like that. If she's at the age yet where she like would just scream in the background and then you kind of listen back yep. to the podcast and you hear her screaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of chaos. Yeah, that's uh, um, definitely a thing. Yeah. So where can people find you? Uh Instagram's probably the best place. Um so yeah, if you just find my, my name Luke Talek on Instagram then that's probably the best place and then I've got uh, an email list and like a little mini course on um, on training I call it training program secrets so it talks a little bit more about this like proximity to failure sort of idea and the recruitment and all that sort of stuff so uh, I know we talked about a lot today but I guess kind of just to, to sort of summarize it all and some of the stuff that I go through on my mini course is firstly we want to have proximity to failure as our like primary thing so try and get close to failure on your working sets start with lower volume and work your way up from there and ultimately we're not really looking for like getting soreness or muscle damage or anything like that we're just looking to place tension on those muscle fibers so if you want to learn a bit more about that and i post a lot of content about that sort of stuff and as i say the mini course kind of helps a little bit with that too mm, yeah for sure so the takeaway that i've really got from this podcast is you know you can have the best training program in the world written by the best coach in the world, but if your training intensity and effort is not there, you're probably not going to see the gains that you're that you're hoping for. Would you agree? Yeah, totally, totally. And that's where that's where the you know you get into this this situation of like I'm doing so much work, but I'm not seeing the results of it. It's probably just because the volume is too high and the per set effort is not quite where it needs to be. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for your time, Luke. Enjoy the rest of your day or night with your in Yeah, 8 a.m. here. So. <laughs> right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you for your time. Thanks a ton. Cheers.